Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 897. On this edition of the podcast, we're checking in on Japanese baseball, we're looking at the Steve Cohen New York Mets, and we're talking about Theo Epstein and his exit from Chicago. To lead us off, David Lorla is joined by Jim Allen of the Kyoto News and Japan Baseball Weekly podcast. David and Jim preview the Japan series, which starts this weekend between the Yomiuri Giants and the Fukuoka SoftBank Hawks. While the Giants have a long history of success, the Hawks are an undeniable dynasty right now. Let me count. I always have to get off my fingers. 2011, 14, 15, 17, 18, 19. This is the seventh time they've been in the Japan series since 2011, and they've won all those previous six. So that is definitely a juggernaut. They are. They're going for their fourth straight Japan Series championship. Next, Jay Jaffe and Craig Edwards talk about Robinson Cano's PED suspension and what that means for the Mets. Cano's salary is off the books for 2021, but he leaves a hole in the lineup and in the infield. Craig recently wrote on his vision for the club, including which big free agents would be his priority. It's not that Springer doesn't fit, it's that the impact isn't as big as it would yeah. be otherwise. So if I were Steve Cohen and I had a bunch of money to throw around, I would go Real Muto starting rotation rather than Real Muto Springer. Right, okay. Finally, Eric Longenhagen and John Taylor discuss Theo Epstein, who is leaving another organization following an overhaul in the championship. The Cubs currently find themselves at an interesting crossroads as their window closes a bit and they face some difficult roster decisions. Meanwhile, Epstein has made an undeniable impact on the sport as a whole, and he's not the only one reflecting on it lately. Because it really does sound like, to a certain degree, Theo Epstein is kind of wrestling with what his legacy is and what the game now looks like because of the things he's done and because of the way he made all these things popular. Yeah, it's a very complex system, baseball. Fangraphs Audio is made possible by our listeners and supporters. It is thanks to your memberships and donations that we get to continue offering everything we do, from the website to the podcast. We are grateful for your help. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest on this segment is Jim Allen. Jim writes for the Kyoto News. He also writes a great baseball blog called jballallen.com. He also co-hosts the Japan Baseball Podcast. Jim, I believe that you have been living in Japan now for 30 plus years. Is that correct? Yeah, on the plus side of 30 plus. And you are from the Bay Area? Correct. Correct. And is it fair to say that you are one of the experts on baseball in Japan as far as people who you know grew up stateside? I think that's fair. I'll go out, I'll go out on a limb. Yeah, we'll, we'll toot your horn to, to start here. I, <laughs> I know that you're not the only one, but you're very prominent. When I put Japanese baseball notes in my, in my Sunday notes column, mm-hmm. quite often it comes from, from your blog. Oh, much appreciated. Yeah, I, I like that stuff. <laughs> I, like your, I like your work, so. Thank you, and vice versa. The Japan series starts on Saturday. Yep. Tomorrow, from when this is released, we're talking on Wednesday night here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, on Friday morning in Tokyo, where you are. Thursday morning. Thursday morning, I'm sorry. I don't know how many time zones that is, but I believe it's 14 hours of time difference and maybe 7,000 miles. 
that's pretty good. Yeah, you've been doing your homework as you as I would expect. <laughs> yes, I know where to find things on Google. I I, I, I think it might be six thousand seven hundred miles. But but okay. anyway, <laughs> the Yomiuri Giants will be playing the SoftBank Hawks. Tell me what people should expect and a little about the teams, their history. Okay, what people should expect? This is sort of like the. I don't know if it's quite the changing of the guard because the Yomiuri Giants parent company essentially built Japan's professional leagues in the 1930s. And they have won Japan's professional baseball championship far more than any other team. And the SoftBank Hawks are the new juggernauts. The Hawks are an old team. They were one of the, I guess, first eight pro teams back in the 30s. But their new owner, SoftBank is a telecommunications giant since 2006. And they have won, this is the, let me count, I always have to get up my fingers, 2011, 14, 15, 17, 18, 19. This is the seventh time they've been in the Japan series since 2011. And they've won all those previous six. So that is definitely a juggernaut. They are. They're going for their fourth straight Japan Series championship. And the Giants are on a string where they haven't... Uh, right now, the Giants have not won a, a Japan Series for seven years, which ties the franchise's worst stretch in history. And that is Sadaharo O's old team, I believe. Yeah. Ironically, Sadaharo O's old team, when Sadaharo O played for them in the 1960s and 70s uh, primarily, they won nine straight Japan series, and Sadaharo o then later went on to become the Giants' manager. And then, uh, historically, he moved to Fukuoka to join the Hawks under their previous ownership group. And he's now the chairman of the Hawks. So it's really a, a sort of the, you know, the, the wheel coming f full circle. Wow. And I believe, I don't know what the home run total is. I have not looked this up recently, but I believe it is. 850 maybe career home runs i think it's 868 i know that you know he was always called the japanese babe ruth and now of course you have the oh i got it right you got it right fantastic 868 home runs i know not bad so in order to get to the japan series teams need to first win you know the semifinals i guess you would call them yeah the climax series that was different this year due to the pandemic i sure. believe yeah, the season didn't start until June 19th, and then we had games behind closed doors for about three weeks. And in order to accommodate the difficulties with COVID-19, they did away with interleague play, much to the, the smiles of the Central League teams who get pummeled every year. They also shortened a few league games and then the Central League did away with its playoffs. Playoffs are a, are a sort of a new thing. The Climax Series are a new thing that were essentially invented by the Pacific League, which is kind of the upstart league. It's not an upstart. They, started, they both started at the same time in 1950. But the Central League has Japan's two most prestigious teams, or two most famous teams, the Hanshin Tigers and the Yomiuri Giants. And the Pacific League's always struggled for that kind of panache, uh, not panache, but ca they've always struggled for that cachet. But in the last 15 years, it's been completely the other way around. The Pacific League teams led by the Hawks 
and the Nippon, uh, Nippon Ham Fighters and Seibu Lions have just been the class of Japan. And the Giants have just been sort of after, I won't say afterthoughts, they're never afterthoughts in Japan, but they're, they're sort of the second banana right now. So Jim, you uh, have had an interest in analytics for quite a long time. We've talked about that. Mm -hmm. What is the current state of analytics in Japanese baseball? That's a great question because analytics for a long time in Japan was, it was treated with a kind of, dis, not, not quite with disdain, but Japan has the same kind of insider-outsider uh, schism or attitude towards new ideas that Major League Baseball has long had. So it was a hard sell. There were always uh, analytical people in Japanese baseball, but they were doing it their way. They weren't really keen on outsiders coming into the picture, you know, in sort of that Moneyball movie image. But that's changed a bit. Most of the teams now have analytic departments. It's it's a very recent thing. But we've also had some shifts. We've that's I guess a, a visible a visible or a, a physical representation of that is teams have begun to shift, which is a very hard thing to do in Japan because the hitters tend to be very good at going to the opposite field. It's kind of a Japanese thing. A well-known Japanese thing, at least for the players who come here. Yeah. How important is the batting title to fans in Japan? It's still pretty. Uh, it's pretty. Yeah, it's hard to. It's always hard to differentiate between what fans want and what fans think and what newspaper editors think. <laughs> does that make sense? It it does and it doesn't. Here would be my follow-up. Okay. I took a look, and it looks like the batting title this year was won by. Is it Masataka Yoshida? Yep. Is he looked at at a star there? He is, but he plays for the Oryx Buffaloes, so people are familiar with him. But he's not really a he's not a major star because he he plays for such a bad team. Despite the fact that he has put up very good numbers mm. for the last three or four years. Well, he's I think widely respected as a good player, but in Japan, so much goes with being on the winning team. So much so that. The MVP voting in Japan is primarily a quest to find the best player on the championship team. Much like it was in the United States a generation or two ago. Yes, yes. I have a, I have a hard time distinguishing between what the fans really want and what the newspaper and sports media want to give them. It's really sort of locked like tectonic plates. <laughs> I mean, they don't seem to move very much. What TV and, and uh, newspapers report is so much, uh, you know, who drove in the winning run. The game's hero is virtually always the guy who drove in the, the winning run, whether it was he hit a ground ball that somehow wasn't caught and it was called a single and he got an RBI and he comes on and he comes on the post-game hero interview. Uh, that's really where J Japanese baseball still is. It's really stuck in its routines. So to go back to the analytics, the analytics are there, but they're sort of there in the background. People know they're going on. It hasn't, analytics haven't, I don't want to say hijacked the game, but they haven't hijacked the flavor of the game the way they have in the major leagues. Yeah, you mentioned, Jim, a few minutes ago, the MVP award. Mm -hmm. I am forgetting what the Japanese Cy Young Award is. Uh, that's the Sawamura 
the AG, they don't, we don't really have a, a Japanese Cy Young Award. There is a pitching award, but it's limited. And last year, they did not give one out. They did not give one out. That's correct. It's an award decided by a panel of former pitchers, and it's sponsored by the Yomiuri Shimbun, the, the owners of the Yomiuri Giants. And they, every year, select a starting pitcher who is essentially the most impressive starting pitcher in Japan. But they have a bunch of benchmarks, and if nobody sort of rises to their standard of excellence, every 15, 20 years ago, they will opt not to select a player. And it's one player from both leagues. So yeah, it, it has happened. It's the second time I remember that they haven't picked a winner. And who is in line to win this year? This year is probably, we have, I guess, three solid candidates. We have uh, Kodai Senga, who's the SoftBank Hawks ace. He led the, he tied or led the Pacific League in strikeouts, wins, and ERA. And in the Central League, there's the Yomiuri Giants ace, Tomoyuki Sugano, who started the season 13-0 and and was, was virtually assured of the award until the Chunichi Dragons left-hander Yudai Ono threw 10 complete games and six shutouts, and he had a stretch of 44-some innings without allowing a run. And Sugano, I believe, is a candidate to potentially be posted this year. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. He's a two-time winner of the Sawamura Award. He won in 2017 and 2018, and he probably would have won in 2016 if he had better luck. But Japan's still really big on wins, so we don't have a... There's no sort of Felix Hernandez revolution going on here yet where you know, the guy who has the best peripheral stats will win the Cy Young Award. Is he someone that we can expect to be posted? And who else can be expected to be? Well, Sugano has a chance to be posted. He's said often that he wants to play in the major leagues. He almost went to the major leagues instead of playing in Japan. So he is probably going to be posted this year. I don't want to guarantee that because of the coronavirus might keep him from doing that. And who else is rumored to be posted? Well, Yudai Ono was on the list, but that was a, that was far-fetched. The other guys who are talking about going to the States are uh, Nippon Ham Fighters ace Kohei Arihara, who's a, who's a would fit in with a, a major league rotation, probably at the lower end. He's got a lot of tools, but he's still figuring things out. And also Nippon Ham Fighters center fielder Haruki Nishikawa, who is the absolute, if you look in a picture dictionary where it says Japanese leadoff hitter, there's a picture of him. He's a slap hitting, left-handed, on-base guy, hits five home runs a year, steals 20, 30 bases a year, He's just a really he's a really smart hitter, but he's not going to scare anybody. He's he's a, a good fielder, good base runner. Yeah, not a lot of players do come over from Japan to MLB. How much free agency and trading happens within Japan between NPB teams? The free agency is a new thing. It was created by the teams in the mid 1990s. It was created by the Giants so that they could absorb uh, older veteran players from other teams. 
And ironically, it was it was created because they never dreamed Japanese players would be good enough to play in the majors. And Hideo Nomo kind of crashed that party. So it started very slowly. It started out you know, one player every few years would go. One player would go to the Giants. But right now, it's uh, several players a year uh, move as free agents. Two, three, four, four guys a year will move. It's pretty steady. Trades are another matter. Trades are very few and far between. Teams are very hesitant to trade big players. Most of the biggest trades take place because teams can't agree on salaries. So if there's a blockbuster trade, it's usually because somebody wants uh, more money than the team's willing to give them, and so they package them in a trade. But that's a that's a once every five or six year kind of thing. And I believe that there was a, a meaningful free agent signing uh, just today. Well, there was uh, actually not a not a free agent signing, but the Tokyo Yakult Swallows locked up their uh, star second baseman, Tetsuto Yamada. He's kind of a generational talent, and he signed a seven-year deal worth about $33 million, which is kind of rare because they're a fairly cheap team. But they kept, that kept him from filing for free agency in a couple of weeks. Yeah, a few more things, Jim, before mm -hmm. we run out of time. Okay. Uh, one player that I wanted to ask about is, is it Kensuke Kondo, I believe is the name? Kensuke who, Kondo. <laughs> okay. Year after year, high batting averages, high on base percentages. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, he's a combination of that, uh, as I mentioned, the left-handed leadoff hitter type guy. Now, this is a, a really common player type in Japan, and he's sort of taken it to the next level. There's a couple of players like him in Japan. They have power but they essentially use the strike zone to maul pitchers. They don't go for any, they're just they're really, really disciplined. They can hit the ball the other way. They can hit the ball wherever it's pitched. They can foul off pitches. This is a key component of that archetype. A guy who can foul off most pitches on the edge of the zone that he doesn't like and will get really long at bats. And if you make a mistake to him, this guy could kill you. And does he have the type of bat that would play in MLB? That's a good question. He's he's a very different. He's um, Shogo Akiyama, who moved to the Cincinnati Reds, is that kind of hitter, although a faster hitter. Would he translate to the States? It's really hard to say because the pitching style is quite different. I'm trying to think. He's not quite Ichiro. I mean, Ichiro is, is another example of that archetype. And he's not as athletic as Ichiro. He's not quite as athletic as Norichika Aoki, another player of that ilk. But he's extremely disciplined. And the problem with disciplined hitters sometimes is that sometimes they're really good at adapting like Hideki Matsui was. And sometimes they're not. I mean, Ichiro Suzuki was a very disciplined hitter in Japan, never swung at anything out of the zone. And then he went to America and he forgot about the strike zone. So... I wish I had a name. We haven't really had a, a guy go over there. Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, let's uh, jump to uh, Thank the last, you. last two me. things I have in mind, Jim. Okay. Who is the best young player or players in Japan that necessarily aren't going to be posted anytime soon, if ever, but people here should know about? I'm talking about players who are maybe 22 to 24 years old as opposed to veterans. Okay. 
I guess the number one guy, and he's a left-handed hitter. I don't know if he'll be posted or if he'll go to the States or not, but this is a guy, he's a kind of a chubby uh, first baseman, third baseman for the Yakult Swallows named Mune Murakami, who hit more home runs in a season as a teenager than anybody in Japanese baseball history in 2019. And he's taken a big step forward. He's 20 this year. And he could be a major league caliber batting star. But the problem with Japanese hitters moving to the majors is that unless they're Shohei Otani, go when they're 23, it's really hard for Japanese hitters to catch up to to get used to pitchers throwing 100 miles an hour a lot because virtually nobody does in Japan. Most of the guys who go to the States are 27, 28, 29, and it's a super hard adjustment. But if he were to go when he's 25, he could, he could really do some damage. So to close, let's go the opposite. How about players who have come this past year or two to Japan from MLB? Oh, you know, yeah. Adam, Adam Jones is, of course, notable. Hmm. Uh, Tyler, Tyler Austin had a great year. Yeah, Tyler Austin was a, was a big surprise in Yokohama. Matt Moore moved to the Hawks. He was coming off an injury with the Detroit Tigers, and he's had a, a super season. Drew Verhagen, who was also coming from the Tigers, he had a pretty solid year. Jerry Sands, he came from Korea. He was in Korea. He, w- he won an RBI title in 2019 in Korea, the former Los Angeles Dodgers outfielder. He had a pretty solid season this year for the Hanshin Tigers. And Adam Jones had a fairly disappointing season. He did. He did, and I don't want to pick on his agent Nez Bolello, but he he uh, he guffawed at the winter meetings in December when I I mentioned Adam Jones's name in the same sentence with Andrew Jones, who was a year and a half older when he he came to Japan in 2013, but had a better season and led his team and lead his team to the Japan Series Championship. But he was a he was a, a valuable leader on the 2013 Eagles that had uh, Masahiro Tanaka and won their first championship. So it was a a disappointing year for Adam Jones. I don't want to say he underestimated how difficult it was, but it is really hard. Japanese baseball is still baseball, and if you don't really pay attention, it can eat you up. I mean, I mean, you have to, you have to really be on it. I mean, just like I, I think there are a lot of major leaguers who, if they went to to single A ball and closed their eyes, they would be surprised how hard it is. And that's Japanese baseball. It's not only is is it good, but it's different, and it comes at you in ways you don't quite expect. And so you have to be really alert. And I think, and I don't want to say Adam Jones wasn't alert, but it's it's just hard for major leaguers sometimes to to grasp, I guess, where the challenges come from. That is Japanese baseball. This was Jim Allen. I am David Lorla, and thanks for listening. Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. I am talking to you here on uh, Thursday, November 19th. We are a day removed from the news that Robinson Cano will miss the entire 2021 season due to his second suspension for violating the uh, joint drug program. This time he was popped for actually using uh, the PED stenozolol. I think that's how you say it. The artist formerly known as Winstrol. 
I wrote about this piece at Fangraphs today, and what I discovered is that uh, really this looks like it might be a little bit of a silver lining for the Mets in that it gives them some additional financial and roster flexibility by taking his $24 million salary off the books. But I wanted to talk through a few details, and then I wanted to bring in uh, Craig Edwards, who who uh, is one of the uh, uh, other Fangraphs writers who's recently written about the Mets, and we're going to talk through uh, some of the moves they've made recently and about the regime change from the Wilpons uh, to the Steve Cohen era. So first off, uh, Cano was suspended because he, he failed the PED test, and this makes, in some ways, this makes the December 2018 deal to acquire him and Edwin Diaz from the Mariners in exchange for a five-player package headlined by former first-round picks Jared Kelnick and Justin Dunn look all the worse the performances of Cano and Diaz in 2019 were essentially replacement level, and it more or less cost them a playoff spot, given that they finished three games out of the second wildcard spot. Cano did fare better in 2020, hitting 316, 352, 544, and ranking fourth on the team in, with a 141 WRC plus and 1.3 WAR. But it wasn't nearly enough to help the Mets. Now that he's out of the picture, they have a lot more flexibility in the infield. He only played 33 games at second base, which, you know, in some ways they could look at the possibility of moving Jeff McNeil back to the Keystone. They could go after DJ LeMahieu. They could do all sorts of things. We're going to talk about that with Craig Edwards. But the one thing I found interesting in looking in looking into this is that Cano was just the second player suspended for PED usage this year. Basically, what we know now via Joel Sherman of the New York Post is that Major League Baseball more or less shut down its PED testing program between the time that camps closed in mid-March and then reopened in July because the main lab in Montreal that they used for processing the PED tests was closed and because in some jurisdictions the sample collectors were not considered to be essential personnel. We also know that the lab in Salt Lake City that they uh, often use for, for PED testing was converted to be their main center for processing COVID tests. They only issued about a thousand drug tests during the year, and given that there were there was uh, almost thirteen hundred players who actually appeared in a major league game, it's obvious that not every player got tested. Joel Sherman quoted several players as saying they were only tested once towards the end of the year, so it stands to reason that there were players who you know, probably figured out that uh, this might be a, a good time to uh, abuse PEDs uh, and and get away with it, and that seems based on. The inferences here is that that might be what what Cano was thinking. Anyway, this is just the fifth full year suspension for uh, PED usage. Before that, we had Alex Rodriguez most prominently, also Marlon Byrd, and uh, most recently uh, Francis Martez of the Astros, who is the only other player suspended this year. Oh, and 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 of course Andrew Mejia, another Mets link there. So the other angle on this, before we get to Craig here, is is the Hall of Fame angle, and uh, you know there were there I saw some things written that uh, oh this is going to close down Cano's path to the Hall of Fame, and I kind of think that 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 was already uh, a done deal after his 2018 suspension because you look at the history of the way that the BBWA voters uh, have treated uh, players linked to PEDs whether they were suspended or not. And uh, there's nobody really who's gotten the benefit of the doubt, you know, with this level of infraction and gotten away with it to the voter's satisfaction. We've seen both Manny Ramirez and 
Rafael Palmero struggle on the ballot. We've seen uh, everybody besides Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens lag. Guys like Mark McGuire and Gary Sheffield and Sammy Sosa, who had big home run totals and and other things going for them. Next year, we'll see what happens to A-Rod when he becomes eligible. Uh, And David Ortiz, who reportedly failed the 2004 survey test. I think Ortiz might be the guy who breaks through here. Certainly doesn't seem like Clemens or Bonds are are going to be elected, even though they're about 61% uh, heading into their final two years of eligibility. Cano has uh, over 2,600 hits, well over 300 home runs. He's got a chance to break the record for the most home runs by a second baseman. He's already the, uh, ranked seventh in Jaws, but I think all that's for naught. I mean, you know, with, with two PED suspensions, I don't see how the voters are going to look the other way on that stuff. This is not mere conjecture. This is uh, flunked drug tests, and, and, and that's a real bummer because, uh, you know, at one point it looked like he was uh, going to be considered uh, among the greatest ever. With that out of the way, I want to bring in Craig, and uh, we're going to talk about his five pieces of advice for Steve Cohen and the Mets in 2021. Welcome, Craig. Hey, how's it going? Uh, Pretty good here, despite stumbling over some of those words. Anyway, you uh, back on November fifth, the day before the, uh, the the Mets sale closed, you wrote a piece giving some advice to the Mets for how to handle their roster, uh, both for twenty twenty one and I think in, in general strategies. And I think it, it seems like it's particularly worth revisiting because since then we've seen Marcus Stroman accept a qualifying offer and and come back to help bolster the rotation. And now with the Cano suspension, they have more money to play with, but also one more position or, you know, full-time equivalent to, to fill, but they have a lot of paths to do that. So I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, if you just, if you're just looking at it from, you know, a straight swap out, you know, Cano's salary and Marcus Stroma's salary are pretty close to, to being even. So you replace one with the other and, you know, you look at the projections and Marcus Stroman is projected to be a win better than what Cano would have done. So you gain a win there. But because, you know, you have those sort of internal replacements for, for Cano potentially, you know, moving McNeil back to second and potentially moving J.D. Davis to third, you're not actually going to lose anything there just because they, they had a lot of guys who were going to be getting more rest. I mean, they have a sort of full outfield as it is already. And, you know, putting McNeil and Davis into the infield a little bit more, which is presumably what they'll do now, you know, it, it sort of, it, it eliminates the two win loss from from losing Cano. And so basically what you did is you gained three wins by getting Marcus Stroman over, you know, the fifth starter, which, you know, who knows who, who that might've been, but we're talking about pretty close to a replacement level situation uh, as far as the Mets are concerned. And then, so you got three wins better and you didn't spend any money. I mean, that's, that's a fairly, fairly decent start. Right. Uh, The Mets could go out and they could get somebody in the, the middle infield, you know, I think like Jake wrote about Marcus Stroman in the Mets infield defense and Robinson Cano was probably actually one of the better defenders that, that the Mets had on the infield. So maybe McNeil, you know, and Cano, you know, are a wash at second or maybe, you know, they go out and sign Colton Wong or, you know, the pie in the sky dream would be trading for Francisco Lindor at shortstop. I wrote in my piece that I didn't think that trading for Lindor was necessarily the type of splash move the Mets should make. Right. And I want to talk about that, but but continue here. 
Yeah, and the main focus with Steve Cohen and the Mets right now is going to be what they're going to do in in free agency, just because obviously Cano's salary gives them a little bit more flexibility, and they already had a, a decent amount of flexibility to go up to a New York-type payroll instead of the middle-of-the-road-type payroll. And, you know, I in my piece I mentioned that, you know, like some depth in the infield would help. Guys who can play the infield and outfield, you know, like Jerks and Profar, Enrique and Hernandez are guys that, that might be uh, might be helpful or getting a, a center fielder who's more of a defensive guy who could, you know, help take some of the pressure off, off Nemo a little bit and, and move things around. And that's sort of why I favor Real Muto for the Mets pretty heavily over George Springer. I mean, George Springer is a very good player and and he'll do very well, I think, in free agency. But uh, the Mets have basically a zero at catcher and Rio Muto would make a huge difference. Where, as in the outfield, even if you're moving J.D. Davis to third base full-time, you know, he's played some left field, he's played some third base. It's not clear that he's a great defender anywhere. But Dominic Smith isn't really a, a left fielder either. But, you know, if there's no DH next year, that he'll have to play out in the outfield. So you, if you've got Conforto and Nemo and Smith, you've got a situation where once you bring in Springer, then you have to move things around and, and the wins that you gain aren't as big because the guys that you're replacing are are still fairly fairly quality players. And that's why I would go after a real Muto okay. if I were them. I want to touch on, on several points there. Yeah, your first, first of all, let's talk just a little bit about, about Real Muto. The one thing that, that stuck out to me was that uh, it was a late October report, even before you wrote this, uh, from Jim Salisbury of NBC Sports Philadelphia, uh, about him wanting to remain in Philadelphia and being, quote, not particularly keen on New York. Those are Salisbury's words, not not Real Muto's. But I wanted to know what you made of that. You think that's just a negotiating ploy, or do you think he really has reservations of being in New York and the additional pressure that brings? Yeah, well, CC Sabathia wanted to stay in California, right? Right. So I mean, okay. I, I think that every player says that they want to stay wherever they are, so that you know they stay on the good side of fans, and maybe they try to get a little bit more money out of a place that they say that they don't want to go to. And oftentimes they do get that right. money or extra year or whatever it is. You know, I, I think in the end, the highest, highest offer is probably going sure. to, to talk there. Might he give the Phillies a chance to match, you know, whatever it is that New York has to offer? Might he even take a little bit less? Sure. But there's no way that he's not, he's going to foreclose New York as a possibility when potentially, you know, if you've got the Phillies, the Yankees and the Mets all wanting your services, you if you take out the Yankees and the Mets, then there's a lot less teams looking to sign you. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Let's see. The second second thing I wanted to note as with regards to Real Muto and Springer, the thing that stuck out to me with Springer is that I've, I've written about this. Seven, 17 times at least, it's, it feels like, over the last five years. But just the way that the Mets have had such a mismatched collection of outfielders over the years, they're always putting, you know, whether it's Ioannis Cespedes or Michael Conforto or Brandon Nimmo in center field, treating it as a very bat-first position most of the time. And having, you know, Juan Ligaris around for a while uh, as as the glove guy if they, if they needed that and, uh, you know, if the platoon situation worked out that way, you know, helped out. But to me, Springer 
looked like a guy, a guy who, who would be a fit because he solved all that all those problems, giving him a significant advantage if you're comparing him to, say, Marcel Ozuna, even though Ozuna is the younger player and certainly had the bigger season with the bat in 2020. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is the point in the, the offseason where people are like, well, you know, Marcelo Zuna used to play center field. And then, you know, you you watch him play and you're like, well, that was a long no. time ago. <laughs> and yeah. But, but yeah, I think that they very much do need someone who can play center field, you know, at least some of the time. And, and Springer definitely fits that bill. He also hits from the right side, which is extremely helpful for their lineup to, to right. balance balance things out. That being said, you know, bringing in Springer creates extra players who perhaps deserve to start. And so that, that makes the impact of Springer less. I'm not saying that they shouldn't go out and sign Springer, but at the same time, they do need someone to come in who can play center yeah. field. I don't think that you go into a season and say, Brandon Nimmo is our center fielder, but sometimes Michael Conforto is going to play center field. Or, you know, like, you know, they tried Marisnik, who is, you know, just another Lagares right. type player. And, and I think that it's a situation where you need to change something. And Springer is the easy change but it doesn't help their team as much as it would just because you could put Nemo there and sacrifice on defense and get a little bit more on offense uh, c- compared to, you know, what you would do if you, I don't know, if you, if you went out and just got like a, a defense first guy who didn't, you know, totally make sense, but could start all year. So it's not the Springer doesn't fit. It's that the impact isn't as big as it would yeah. be otherwise. So if I, were Steve Cohen, and I had a bunch of money to throw around, I would go Real Muto starting rotation rather than Real Muto Springer. Right. Okay. I guess the one thing I would I would say to that is is you know when you're shuffling around the outfield, you know if you put Springer in center and you move and you move Nimmo to left, you're sort of displacing, you know, the playing time that either McNeil or Dominic Smith or even J D Davis could get there. But I feel like. All those guys are, it's kind of a patchwork in left field, and you're not really displacing anybody who's a true plus out there. And I'm, I think, more skeptical than most about Davis, whether you're talking about the continuation of his bat being above average, as well as his ability to, to adequately cover third base. I guess he was still pretty good last year, 117 WRC+, plus, but his defense, I think, charitably has been called a work in progress. But, you know, the metrics, I think, say, you know, say more that this is a DH candidate, uh, minus eight DRS in just 269 innings last year, minus nine in 220 innings uh, the year before that, it's tough to justify that uh, when you're moving the pieces around the board. Yeah, it's not it's not great when career first baseman Dominic Smith is a better option. Yeah, as a out Smith there. has looked pretty pretty bad out there. The one one other free agent that I that I thought really comes into play in this now, particularly with Cano out, is uh, DJ Lemayhew. You know, and I wanted to get your your thoughts on him because I don't think he really came up in your piece because it, you know at that time it seemed like the infield was fairly crowded. What do you think? What do you think of him as a, as a priority? Yeah, and at the cost that you assume for Lemayhu, it, it made no sense when you already had had Cano there. I, I think that there's now an opening in the middle infield to to add someone. Lemayhu probably isn't the guy that I would add mm-hmm. if I'm the Mets. Um, I, I I would go lean more towards defense. You know, Colton Wong could be had for yeah. for presumably not very much money. You know, I, I think 
LeMahieu is a good player, but if you're talking about getting into a Mets-Yankees bidding war and, you know, trying to win, I don't know that 50, 60, 80 million dollars for LeMahieu is the best use of resources. I, I think that obviously he is a good player and would help the team, but I, I think that they're they're better off sort of going cheaper at second base, which seems to be a, a theme throughout the majors right one of the guys who's who's available and then uh using that money uh in the, in the rotation because even after getting marcus stroman you know they, they still need help you know you you look at at the depth charts and you know you can't really assume that no center guard is going to come back and and be healthy and either way you're still going to be without him for 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 a bunch of the season and so you you got Degrom and Stroman, and it it would really help the team, I think, to get another, you know, maybe third, like type number three type right. starter. And you know, if you're going to battle out with the Yankees, I think uh, Tanaka might be an interesting guy to go try and get. Yeah, that was where that was where I was going to turn this discussion is 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 what do you do behind Degrom and Stroman? Because like you said, uh, you can't count on Syndergaard for a full season. He's not going to be back for a full season. Stephen Matz was a disaster in twenty twenty. Peterson has some promise, but I think is still you know somebody who who I'm not sure you're going to. Uh, project to get a full complement of innings out of. And then uh, the eternal Seth Lugo question, uh, which to me I thought was resolved because I don't think he pitched very well as, as a starter. And I think the bullpen really needs him, but this Mets regime may, may think otherwise. So Tanaka is an interesting name. Do you think that Trevor Bauer is a realistic target for them? It's realistic if you're looking at, you know, spending the 20 to $25 million or potentially more that, that it will cost to, to bring in Bauer. I think that that's something they can do. It would make the team better. You know, I guess it, it's it's sort of a question of how high is, is Cohen going to take Mets payroll? Because I think right. they do need you know, the Rio Muto or Springer on the position player side. And the question is, you know, after Stroman, do they have the 25 million or do they have maybe the 15 million for, you know, Tanaka or, you know, someone in the, the tier after Bauer? And right. then maybe, you know, I, I think it'd be interesting to see them make a play for, for Hendricks if they got the other things already in, in line. I, I don't think they should spend too much money on the bullpen unless it's for yeah. an elite guy. But, I mean, like you're saying— This is like, Liam Hendricks you're talking about here, which yeah, yeah. which was your fifth item in your piece here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just want to clar- clarify that for the listeners out there because uh, uh, we hadn't talked about that. But. Yeah, but, I mean, if, if you're going Lugo, Hendricks, and Diaz at the end of games, I mean, that's— that could really be a difference maker and and help you out even if the the back end of your rotation isn't quite as as solid as as you want it to be and you know maybe uh Jacob deGrom might if you're interested in wins he might win like 15 games instead of you know <laughs> if they have seven a real bullpen yeah so Craig based on what you've said it sounds to me like like you foresee the Mets adding one big ticket item say either Real Muto or Springer, and then maybe a mid-priced pitcher like Tanaka, maybe a higher-priced pitcher, Trevor Bauer, and then hopefully at least one other upgrade in there, uh, perhaps a Colton Wong or just something to deepen the uh, the middle infield. Is that is that an accurate assessment of, of your crystal ball? Yeah, I think so. And I think the Mets could, could be a team that is active around the non-tender deadline, not necessarily, you know, scooping up guys that are getting non-tendered, but maybe uh, 
taking on guys who you know are sort of uh, on the cusp or borderline of getting non-tendered and and maybe that the Mets say sure we'll we'll take that guy here's a prospect no one's ever heard of before yeah I, I think that we got one big ticket item and then everything else is you know another decent starter and then everything else is you know around the fringes and depth maybe bullpen but I think that they've got a solid team they've got good players and they have the ability if they go in to get themselves uh, a lot closer to the top of the NL East. Well, I think that pretty much probably covers what we have time for here. Well, Jay, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that you have a Hall of Fame ballot now. Oh, well, yes, there's that. Congratulations. Thank you. You Thank paid you. your dues. I opened the envelope today. I got the notification on Monday that it was going in the mail, and uh, it must have arrived late la- later last night. We get our mail late here in, in uh, uh, our part of Brooklyn, particularly under the uh, cutbacks of, of the U.S. Postal Service. Will Ryan Tapera get your vote? Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll have to give it a, a long and hard look. No, it was it was really exciting to get it, and and you know it was. Uh, I had to reach in the mailbox twice to to get it, and you know it's like, oh, this is uh, this this is it. Here it is. This is what I've been what I've been waiting for, and that was a really cool feeling. And I did actually take a photograph of it before I opened it, just for just for uh, as as a memento. And I'll probably do something with that photo in uh, one of my upcoming uh, pieces here. I'm gonna I'm gonna write about uh, getting the ballot. I'm also gonna talk to David Lorela who got his ballot or who's getting his ballot this time around as well. We we were both a baseball prospectus when we joined the BBWAA in uh, late 2010. And it's uh, quite a coincidence that we're, that we're both now at Fangraphs. So we're going to talk about that on next week's Fangraphs audio. Well, without giving too much away, can you say whether or not you'll be voting for Scott Rowland? <laughs> I think Scott Rowland is, is about the easiest choice I've got on the ballot. There are no moral qualms. There's no baggage that comes with Scott Rowland. That was one of the reasons why I started my annual uh, Hall of Fame series with him as the first profile, because it was just the easiest decision. You know, I'm, I'm excited as hell to be another vote in his total and hoping that he's the next target of the growing stathead love uh, among the electorate now that Larry Walker has been elected and Edgar Martinez and Tim Raines before him. Glad to hear it. Well, Craig, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts about the Mets on Fangraphs Audio. I'm Jay Jaffe, and we will see you next week, so to speak. Hi, listeners. Welcome to another Fangraphs Audio segment. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. And I am John Taylor. Oops, sorry. There you go. You're just stepping all over it. Oh, God. First segment, and I'm already just... <laughs> leave it in, leave it jumping in. Jumping in when I shouldn't be. <laughs> What's going on, John? Not a whole lot. I was just going to say that I am an editor, Fangraphs. I do the social media, just so people know, because I don't, I, I've been on Fangraphs Audio once before with Meg, but that was what feels like approximately 25,000 years ago, because this whole year is just moving as a geologic ice age. So, But I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be here talking to Eric talking about we're talking about theo epstein we're going to talk about theo epstein yeah there's some stuff about epstein to discuss there's some stuff about what he said during his debriefing sort of press conference uh announcing his departure and there's some stuff to talk about regarding the immediate and long-term future of the chicago cubs which you wrote about recently is there anything you want to talk about uh like the general sort of overall vibe of your piece from this week before we start climbing branches of that tree only that when you look at, because what I did was, you know, when I, when you saw, or when I saw the news about the Epstein uh, resigning or quitting, whatever, whatever verb you want to use there that doesn't make it sound like he's leaving in disgrace. The thing that kind of stood out to me in looking over the Cubs is like his letter to the team, to team employees to say, you know, here's why I'm leaving basically. 
you know, to see the words challenges and transition and all that stuff, I was like, this, this is the Cubs. Like, this shouldn't be, like, this is not a team that it feels like should be some huge endeavor or lift at this point to have them be good. They're, they're the Cubs. They're worth billions of dollars. Their owners are worth billions of dollars. They are one of the five most popular teams in baseball with a fan base that will never, ever leave them. And then you actually start looking at, you know, specifically drilling down on what it is that the Cubs both face this offseason, kind of what they need to do, and you fully understand, oh, he doesn't want any part of this anymore because this is just a mess now. You know, that the window for this team has, if it's not closed, it's getting really close to closing, and that they have a lot of really hard decisions coming this winter. And I imagine first and foremost is, what do you do with Chris Bryant? Because this is his last year of team control. He's, you know, so it's one more year. This is his last year of arbitration, so he's about to get even more expensive there than he already is, which is a problem for Ricketts family that just does not want to spend money anymore. And also he was terrible last year. So, you know, you're, you're in that weird position where it's like, does Chris Bryant make sense as a non-tender candidate? And then even beyond that, like, you know, this is the last year of team control for Javi Baez. This is the last year of team control for Kyle Schwarber. Wilson Contreras and Ian Happ are going to get more expensive in arbitration. You still owe a ton of money to Jason Hayward and you Darvish. And certainly while Darvish, that's not a bad thing necessarily. He's also 34 years old. You're not whatever Epstein or Jed Hoyer or whoever would want to do with regards to if there is a, a need to kind of drop payroll, you're not going to be able to move you Darvish because no one's going to want to pay whatever's left on his contract, which I think is some, what, 80 some million dollars for a 34 year old starter, even as one as good as you Darvish. Certainly no one's going to pay for Jason Hayward. I don't think you're going to get anyone to bite on the mistake you made by giving Craig Kimbrell money when you gave him money. there's a lot that's wrong with the Cubs where it just feels like you have two, you only really have two options in front of you. One is you kind of pull a late stage Phillies or Tigers and you just say, screw it. You spend as much as you can to try to prop the window up enough to let that core kind of get one more shot and hope that, you know, between whatever coaching you have and whatever analytics you use, you can figure out a way to make Baez and Bryant better, or at least have them perform better because, you know, the talent is obviously there. Or you say, well, we tried, that's the end of it, because fixing this as it stands is going to take both a lot of money and to a certain degree kind of a denial of reality and force you into a position where you are going to have to end up sacrificing what little future capital you have with guys like maybe Braylon Marquez. I mean, I don't think like Ed Howard would be part of it, but you know, the, those kind of prospects... Because I don't know, you you know obviously way more about their their prospect system than I do, but they didn't come into 2020 particularly highly rated. And I can't imagine that, you know, as you kind of start looking ahead to what the 2021 rankings are going to look like, that they've made a particularly big jump one way or the other. Yeah, you know, I agree with everything you said. I think that Epstein cited it in, you know, some of his remarks that the idea of non-tendering Bryant, or at least the threat of it, considering the rest of what the Cubs have done so far this offseason, basically, where they've shown signs that the org is cash-strapped by ownership, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But yeah, at the very least, Bryant's trade value is is impacted pretty severely by this idea that he might be non-tendered, and what they get back for him might be either prospects or his salary paid in full, but probably not both in a robust way. And so, yeah, like all of these are difficult. I do think at one point we were discussing, will they extend either Addison Russell or Javi Baez? And so the situation for like longer than this now has been kind of messy. But yeah, from a farm system standpoint, the org has been really good at picking up players 
internationally, there's a, an interesting foundation of really young uh, international guys who are in their late teens right now. And you can kind of count some of the the recent high school picks in that group as well. Cole Roderer, Brennan Davis. But where the org really did not do well, which is having impact now. And again, it's weird we're talking about this. Like the Cubs won the division this year. Is just the college pitching. There was a stretch where they drafted a ton of low variance college pitching that they, from the outside, it seemed as though they would hope they hope would move quickly, be on the 40-man fast, and provide depth either to the back of the rotation or to a bullpen that was not good in 2020. It was not like a contender's bullpen, really. You mentioned Kimbrell and Ryan Tapera, Rowan Wick, and Jason Adam, and some of these guys were, you know, their conversion arms or guys who they had to teach a new pitch to or their lower-end relief arms, realistically, not the the constant stream of late inning stuff that the Rays run out there, that some of the other like true contending teams run out there. And so like Corey Abbott and Tyson Miller and Keegan Thompson, Eric Yulman, Riley Thompson, Brendan Little, these are all guys who just recently drafted college arms who are about to be Rule 5 eligible or have been for a second, who just aren't slam dunks to be on a roster or make the team and contribute in any way in the near term. None of them rushed to the big leagues. And so, yeah, there was just, it was a thinner pitching staff that required Alec Mills and Jason Martinez has Colin Ray projected as next year's fifth starter right now. Like it's not great. So yeah, it is a really interesting situation that in an org that should be more well-funded, you would think considering how popular the team is, how well they've done recently. And it just doesn't seem to be the case. One of the things that Theo mentioned during his press conference that I did want to drill down with you on is this, and I do you have the quote up because I don't right now. Yeah, yeah, I mentioned about uh, aesthetics and statistics. I can read it out. So he was asked during the press conference, kind of, and I think it was an L. I don't know what the exact question was, but I'm assuming it was kind of to reflect back on the role he's played, you know, in baseball. Because alongside Billy Bean, you can probably make the argument that Theo Epstein is the figurehead of everything baseball has become over the last 20 years and one of the most important figures in that transformation into being this super data and analytics heavy sport that, you know, basically for, for lack of a better descriptor, baseball turning into well Moneyball, and, you know, his response to kind of the state of the game as it currently is as influenced by him and all his disciples, so to speak, which is weird to think about because he's only 46 years old. Like this is, he's still relatively young compared yeah. to, I mean, relatively young just generally, but compared to the guys now running teams who are distressingly young in themselves. It's, it's very weird to think about that too. His response was, it's the greatest game in the world, but there are some threats to it because of the way the game is evolving. And I take some responsibility for that because the executives like me who have spent a lot of time using analytics and other measures to try to optimize individual and team performance have unwittingly had a negative impact on the aesthetic value of the game and the entertainment value of the game. I mean, clearly, you know, the strikeout rates are a little bit out of control and we need to find a way to get more action in the game, get the ball in play more often and allow players to show their athleticism some more and give the fans more of they want. It's funny that how much this sounds, number one, like Rob Manfred. Um, He just kind of seems to be towing what is now the league line on the game as it currently exists does not do enough. He also kind of sounds weirdly like Tom Verducci, which is it's his own fun thing. And Verducci is very much one of the most vocal cheerleaders for the game has turned into something that is no longer aesthetically pleasing. But there is like, I mean, obviously there is a kernel of truth to that because, you know, he, he was a big part of ushering this revolution in. 
And so it's really interesting to see him kind of reflect on what that has meant and really kind of focus on the idea that the game that we've created is ugly because winning is ugly because we've all realized, or if not realized, then kind of made it the orthodoxy of baseball that there is not just one way to win, but there is a specific path you take to winning and a specific way you measure and analyze players and a specific path to efficiency. And efficiency doesn't always go hand in hand with, with aesthetics. In fact, more often than not, it doesn't. You know, What people love about baseball, what people enjoy about baseball isn't necessarily what creates winning baseball. It's just what makes for entertaining baseball. You know, Nobody wants to build a team except for maybe the Rockies and the Rangers that wins a game like 18 to six every day, you know, or, or 13 to 10, you know, it, but is that the most interesting, most aesthetically pleasing form of baseball? I mean, for some people, it's a team that wins every game one to nothing. That's not necessarily the path to winning either. Well, I mean, it's closer to winning like than winning like 13 to 10, but still, I, I just find it really interesting that this is something he actually thinks and cares about, which also makes me feel like what he says about taking time off and kind of his next stage of baseball being something more in the ownership ranks, if not maybe something along the league makes it stick. It, it, it makes me believe him more because it really does sound like to a certain degree, Theo Epstein is kind of wrestling with what his legacy is and what the game now looks like because of the things he's done and because of the way he made all these things popular. Yeah. It's a very complex system, baseball, and there are a lot of things that happened totally independent of one another, both going on 15 years ago, 20 years ago, as it relates to understanding what players are good, what about players makes them good and is driving, scoring, or preventing runs. And then with more granularity more recently, how to go about making and developing those players, what traits to look for from like a pitch data perspective. And then you have the whole driveline thing and approach strategy as it relates to pulling and lifting the baseball, the shift kind of influencing that in a way. So all of these things together, I do think have been, I've written about this in a couple different places, including in Future Value, but it is- Out in bookstores now. Yeah, out of bookstores <laughs> since April. It's that you're, uh, I'm sure that a bunch of them are collecting dust in these bookstores that have had like, you know, a dozen people in them for the last nine months. Womp womp. But yeah, it is, it's really- I don't blame anybody for having been part of driving the thinking that has in several ways that are completely unrelated to one another and have sort of combined to make baseball look the way it looks right now. I don't even know if I necessarily consider it. I mean, I don't think it's aesthetically pleasing. I'm the Ray Ordonez, like Robbie Alomar and Omar Vizquel are the reason that I was so at seven, eight years old, like, wow, I'm into this. And so it is not like, I don't want to watch Adam Dunn, you know, but some people I don't think might. Adam Dunn even wanted to watch Adam Dunn. That's the, sense, that's the sense I got. I'm at least open to the idea that some people might, what I necessarily care about aesthetically in baseball and just in baseball in general is maybe not necessarily what other people do. And also I think what's kind of funny here is like, no offense to Theo Epstein, but the unintended consequences of your actions to this point now, if you're reflecting on them and don't like them, you should throttle down a little bit on the hubris, this idea that you can fix them, that changing the mound or and none of this has he said specifically, but you know, you mentioned Rob Manfred earlier. So like moving the mound down or back 
or legislating against shifting or whatever. Like the idea that we're about to have electronic strike zones and that's going to do a thing to the way the game looks and feels and the way vertical curveballs play like is going to change. And that's going to have a resounding impact on the game. The unintended consequences of all this stuff, especially when you're trying to play baseball god, I think cannot be understated. And I don't think they can be grasped. And I don't think that MLB has done a great job with some of their experimentation because often they're experimenting with multiple of these changes at one time. And it's impossible to isolate the change of any one of these variables because that's the way they're doing it. They don't really have like a pitch clock and the electronic strike zone and you can't shift like that's what they're doing rather than piecemealing them so there are some problems with the way i see it being approached and then there's also this part of me that looks at baseball and says look there are a finite number of people making a finite number of decisions and so there are some game theory aspects to this that just have not yet settled into any sort of equilibrium the pitchers and hitters that the teams out ahead of the others have been targeting for the last half decade or so are becoming more known about and targeted throughout the league. And as those types of players get spread more evenly throughout the league, it will become more desirable to have hitters that spray the ball and are inoculated against the shift just because of their natural spray and developing hitters who can hit these high fastballs that are in vogue from pitchers right now is going to take more time. It's just so much easier for the pitcher who's in control to say, oh, I'm just going to do this now. And it takes much longer for hitters to adjust and be developed with those things in mind. And so I still still would take a laissez-faire approach to legislating these things because I don't think the dust has settled across the league as far as how these types of players are targeted. And again, I think that at some point there's going to be an equilibrium that presents baseball more like what we are used to from our youth. But I also think like, yeah, I'd rather there be more contact-oriented baseball. So maybe teams, maybe Theo Epstein, Maybe the commissioner's office, although I doubt it, knows more about these things and has thought about stuff in this way more deeply and certainly, you know, has the staff and intellectual horsepower that I don't to solve some of these problems and answer some of these questions that I've got. But I hear what he's saying, but I think I think to, to think that you can fix it uh, <laughs> without creating problems in the wake of your adjustments is is wrong. Yeah, and I agree that there's no, there isn't one magic change. There's no one button that MLB or Theo Epstein or anyone else can push that undoes all of these things. That, like maybe if you could convince baseball to ban sliders, you know, to do something insane like that, like that probably would go actually a long way toward making the game more contact oriented. If you told hitters, hey, don't worry about that 90 mile an hour hellacious breaking pitch. We got rid of that. All you got to do is figure out fastballs now. That's just not realistic and it can't happen. And I agree with what you said that all of these changes that MLB wants to make, they all, you know, you can't isolate any of them. They all have an impact on one another. It's, you know, it's it's one giant knotted ball where pulling one thread invariably has an, uh, an impact on all the others that it's attached to. But I think more than anything, even beyond the aesthetic impact of it, because you're right, like the game will evolve in response to itself. Like baseball is not static. It has never been static. You know, and some of that has been rule changes and some of that has been the growth of the game itself and expansion and integration and all the other things that were obviously, you know, outside forces. But some of it, too, is the way in which baseball kind of continues to move forward is that, like you said, people look for different kinds of talent, different kinds of ability. Shifts have become a big thing. 
great. You go out and try to find hitters who that is not a problem for. You know, you try to find hitters who are better at dealing with high fastballs. You try to find hitters who can work within the game itself and by virtue of them working within that game are then going to change it into something different. You know, who knows? Maybe in five years, we're going to have a league where everyone is Nick Madrigal. That would actually be kind of cool. But regardless, things will change, I think, even on their own. And that this is the current stage of baseball, at least aesthetically, is not going to be baseball forever. The thing I wonder and worry about and that Epstein didn't really uh, latch on to or, or mention, and I think because he has a, played a much bigger role in this than anything else, is how all of these changes have, have had such a huge impact on the labor, economic, and financial side of baseball. And that yeah. that stuff, more than any aesthetic change, more than any problem with there aren't enough, you know, there aren't enough singles or there isn't, singles are not being hit as often, is going to be what does real significant lasting damage to the sport. Because the system that Theo Epstein helped create and that he perpetuated and that he worked within is one where players are simply not as valued, where, or not, not necessarily not as valued, but where they're not compensated fairly, where they're exploited, where you know, they are where their service time is gamed, which is obviously part of the whole Bryant problem isn't just what he's done on the field, but also the fact that he understandably and rightfully hates the Cubs for what they did in terms of cutting off his service time when they did it. And it ties in, I think, well, too, to the idea that, you know, why don't the Ricketts spend more money on the Cubs? Because they've realized that the way to make money in baseball is so divorced from what the actual team on the field does that they don't have to. They've spent how many hundreds of millions of dollars on renovations to Wrigley Field, real estate ventures around Wrigley Field, marquee sports network, all things that have no real impact on the Cubs themselves. I mean, beyond whatever you know, extra win maybe you, you chew out of, oh, you're, the home clubhouse is better now. You have better equipment. I mean, and there's a value to that. But I don't think the Rickets necessarily care about that as much as they care about we have our own cable network now. We'll make money no matter what happens. We don't have to put money into this team anymore. That change in how baseball operates is way more impactful than what exists on an aesthetic level or what exists in terms of a, a talent level. That is the thing that is going to have the biggest impact on what this game looks like going forward and how popular it is way more than what it looks like because, well, this is just what you end up with is teams that don't want to spend or teams that, as what Theo did when he took over the Cubs, just pull into a super hard tank and waste, not waste, but, you know, spend at least a few seasons playing abominable baseball with players that nobody knows and who will not be around long term, that's a way, that's way more damaging than the shift. That's way more damaging than too many sliders. You know, that, that is something that I especially think baseball has no solution for because I don't think baseball cares. You know, this is a business first and foremost, and Rob Manfred runs Major League Baseball like a business. And these general managers run these teams like businesses. The whole point is to win. And ideally, you win while spending the least amount of resources you can. You know, that more than anything, I think, has had an impact on the aesthetics because that's how you end up in a place where, well, if we can streamline this, if we can make it more efficient, if we can kind of create almost like a a kind of a cloning system where it's like all these players turn out with these attributes and abilities, that makes it cheaper for us to do all this going forward. If we can make it so that the 21-year-old can do this stuff at 21 when he's making $545,000 a year or whatever the major league minimum is, you know, that's way better for us than doing it the old way. You know, the old way may look different, but the old way was also to a certain degree more expensive in so much as, you know, leaving aside that everything is more expensive now than it was back in the day. But I I think there's, uh, if you're going to talk about the aesthetics of baseball, you kind of have to reckon with the labor side of it too, because that I think is where the biggest impact has been made. And I think that that ends up impacting the aesthetics on its own because you know winning is not the goal 
or at least winning is a goal, but not the most important goal. And ideally you're doing it for as cheaply as possible. Right. And yeah, I, again, the ground zero for this is hard to nail down. I don't think it's Billy Bean. I don't think it's Theo Epstein. I think it might be Jeff Lunau. But yes, at some point there became like a symbiotic relationship between a certain type of baseball executive and ownership, which was, I will give you a team that is profitable and competitive to the point of, there's a certain tipping point where you're competitive enough to be in the playoffs, but the randomness of the playoffs is going to beat you about a little bit. And, you know, your doesn't work in the playoffs, is I guess the Billy Bean cliche. And then there's like the Dodgers where you are totally in and are so deep and dominant that you're at a different level and fewer teams are shooting for that tier of dominance and competitiveness. More teams are living in the Cleveland Indians tier where they are smartly churning through pretty good players around a core of Jose Ramirez, who they signed to an affordable extension, and Francisco Lindor, who's a superstar on his pre-free agency salaries. And that is how, that is the approach du jour for a lot of these teams. And it's mutually beneficial for the owners who get a cheaper payroll, but a reasonably competitive team, a team that is competitive enough that they are making money. And the executives in exchange for that get abnormal job security compared to the revolving door of executives from 20 plus years ago who would be getting themselves into quote unquote trouble by handing Ryan Howard a giant extension. Uh, You know, you mentioned the, the late Phillies, but yeah, it is difficult to nail down. And then again, like the folks at driveline did not realize that in popularizing pitcher evaluation and development in their mold, that they were in essence writing a sort of death sentence for scouting as an industry, right? Like maybe that's a little too hyperbolic, but to some extent that's occurring, right? Like if I'd, I can scout a pitcher mostly with TrackMan data, certainly much bigger piece of the pie for, for pitching is scoutable via that rather than sending someone there. Like the differences are not great but the amount of time and energy spent to do it and putting someone on a plane, et cetera, like just give me the TrackMan data. And so, yeah, all of these different things are combining to shift the game in a seismic way. And some of it is a bummer. Hopefully the next CBA will put the kibosh in some of this stuff that the players union will understand where these pressure points on the market are and try to alleviate them in some way. I think the owners have kind of shown because so much of what they have to do to counterbalance that is structural in nature with reshaping the minor leagues and stuff that they they're preparing for something like that to happen. And then when it does, how the front offices go about trying to put together rosters in this way is going to have to change. It's not going to be like non-tendering Corey Dickerson or CJ Crone after they've had pretty good years because, you know, eh, they were a little bit lucky and we've got a guy who's about as good in the minors who is going to make the league minimum for three years. Like that equation might have to change and cause teams to be a little bit more inefficient in the short term after it does. So John, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Folks, thanks for listening to another Fangraphs audio segment. We'll see you again soon. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program and feel like giving back, you can leave us a donation at fangraphs.com donate. 
And as always, ad-free memberships are the best way to support and browse the website, and they can be purchased for yourself or as a gift. We will return with an episode early next week in time for the holiday. Thank you for listening.